0: Good morning. morning. It's good to see you, Redeemer family and friends. Um, And what a joy to sing and to rejoice in the gospel this morning. Well, I, I often go on uh, walks at night with my dog, Max. Max might be the most common dog name, so I'm sorry if that's just super simple, but uh, it's, it's Max. Max, Max and I go out for walks, and we often go late at night. So if you live in my neighborhood and you see this guy out walking his dog when it's dark, I'm sorry, uh, but Max does better then, and he doesn't chase after people. Um, and we're out on our walk late at night, and, uh, and the, uh, just, just last week, a few days ago, we were out on a walk, and, uh, I mean, we're not even a minute into the walk when I, when I notice, okay, there's a, like an electric show going on in the sky. There's a lot of lightning happening. Um, and I'm old enough now to where I have like a healthy fear of lightning. As a kid, not so much. They were like, get out of the pool. I'm like, why? Um, but, but now I get it and I go, okay, maybe I should turn back. Maybe we you know, but... You know, then it would pa- a couple seconds would pass and be like, it's probably fine. And it happened again. And I mean, it's lighting up the houses. It's lighting up like this ominous cloud that it just seems like we're walking toward uh, of lightning, just a fireworks show happening in the sky. But we pressed on. Um, we did do the walk. Um, but as, as we got to the back of our neighborhood, this interesting thing happened. Hit the cul de sac that we normally hit. We do the circle and we begin to the loop to go back to the house. And you know what? When we did that loop and turned back, it was all good. The lightning was behind us. I didn't see it, I wasn't noticing it. And you know, it's as though I thought the lightning probably knows that I'm walking away from it. It won't bother me now, um, it'll leave me alone. Um, but see what happened when we made this circle? The weather didn't change. Um, But I was walking the other direction. The lightning was no longer in my view. Um, Of course, in reality, nothing had changed. The lightning was behind me, but it was still there. And I think that in, in, in today's text, Jesus is telling the Pharisees and he's telling his disciples that whether you face it or not, the return of Christ is imminent. It's coming. It's there. Whether you're looking at it or you're looking away, the kingdom is coming. And that also means judgment is coming with it. And we can turn our backs and we can hope for the best or we can consider what God has to say and whether we're actually ready for it. And so as Jesus prepares his disciples, I think he's preparing us. And I want us to consider four realities of the coming king. And number one, the Pharisees can't see it. Number two, disciples won't miss it. Third, his judgment is real. And fourth, his judgment is, or his rescue is available. Now let's go to the Lord now in prayer before we dig into the text. I just wanna invite you uh, right where you are just to pray and ask God um, to, to soften your heart, to, to maybe, maybe slow things down so that you're not distracted and, and to help you hear what, you, what he would have you hear from his word. Pray now. And would you pray for me that I would, that I would speak according to what God has said in his word. Um, and that he would help us hear uh, either through or in spite of what I would say that he would help us to hear um, this morning. Oh, Father, we need to hear from your word. And we need to know what you would say to us today. We need it, we need it daily. We need it moment by moment, like the air that we breathe, we need to know you. And so would you help us? Would you move by your spirit? Would you give us insight and wisdom and understanding? Um, And Lord, would you change us? Would you make us a people who love you and follow you, who want to know you? And so would you do all this for our good, for our joy? Uh, and for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we begin with number one. Pharisees can't see it. Uh, Let's look, let's begin reading in verse 20. So when he, Jesus, uh, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. And it's interesting here that uh, the Pharisees are even asking questions like this. I still think that's fascinating. Like, They don't seem to value Jesus' opinion a lot, but they keep asking him questions. Um, but they, they certainly have some curiosity as to what is in store for God's people in the future. And so they certainly at least like to talk about it and debate it, so they're, they're bringing it up. Um, but I, I think we can also see this coming on the heels of Jesus healing 10 people of leprosy. It's like they're saying, hey, that's, that's neat. I think they're always looking at those little miracles and going, yeah, 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 that. That's, that's a cute little trick. But what about the big thing? What about, what about Israel's foes being vanquished? Tell us, tell us what's gonna happen with that. When's, when's triumph gonna come over more than just leprosy? <clears throat> um, and so they want predictions. They want signs to look for. And here's, here's how he answered them. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. I bet that was like not the answer they wanted. That was probably disappointing. Uh, a total redirect. Like, you wanna know when. You wanna know signs that you should see. And, and as was typical, Jesus is saying, wrong question. Like, it's not about hunting for signs. It's not about a timeline of miracles. Look, he goes on in verse 21. No one will say, see here or there. He's saying there's not gonna be some prophet that's gonna come along and, and guide you to see more signs. No, he's saying the only thing that you truly need Is what he's going to say here in the end of verse twenty-one. You need to see the King. He says, "For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst." He said, "He's saying they're focused on something that's coming, but he's saying everything you really need, everything you truly need to have, it's it's already here. You don't need to see uh, some other future thing. You need to see the Lamb of God who's on the scene, the King who's right here, right now. Jesus is the sign." He's the sign they should observe. And so he's saying, you don't need any other information about the future. You, it won't even matter to you until you submit yourself to the king who's right in front of you. So if you wanna see that kingdom, then you need to see the king. And, and I think maybe, hear me, I, I think maybe there's something in that, even, even for us, in our kind of modern evangelicalism. Uh, there is... I think, and it's honest, honestly, I think it's always been there. There, there can be an obsession, an obsession with predicting times and seasons with, you know, making charts uh, and wringing our hands or twirling our mustaches or whatever, whatever you do uh, when you watch the news, like going, hmm, I don't know, like what, what, what is, what does that mean? Um, And I think particularly in our, in our setting in America, uh, because our country's always been pretty prominent on the national scene, I think we're even more susceptible to wondering, oh, what does that mean? What is this political thing going to mean? Or or what's going on there? And, and yes, let's, let's study the scriptures and See what God has to say about the end. But I think there can be a deadly poison that, that can seep into our faith that says, you know what I really need? I really need to crack the code of the news. What I really need is to predict and see all the signs. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, if you do that and you miss me, then you've lost. It's all in vain. Because what is the beauty of the kingdom to come apart from the presence of King Jesus? What is your shelter in the suffering that's to come apart from the care and the provision of Jesus? And what is your hope right now, like right this second? It is that the King himself, Jesus Christ is with you. That's your hope. And so if your heart is not thrilled with the King, then no details about the coming kingdom matter. So he tells the Pharisees, take your eyes off the future and look to me. And then what's interesting is, he, he notices that he, he looks then in the next verse to the disciples and, and says, okay, now about the future. So it's like he turns and starts talking to the disciples about the future and it's though he's speaking to two different problems. Problem one, the Pharisee problem is, they trust in themselves. And they're worried about the future. And he's saying, hey, if you're trusting in yourself, that's your problem. You got to look to Jesus. He is available. The king is here now. But then the problem too, the disciple problem is they actually do trust Christ. They do trust God, but they're still anxious about the future. And I think that's why Jesus is then turning to the disciples and saying, okay, you trust in God. Now let's talk about the future, which leads to number two, disciples won't miss it. Look at, look at verse 22, he keeps going. Then he told the disciples, so now he's talking to the disciples. The days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, <clears throat> but you won't see it. They will say to you, see there or see here, don't follow or run after them. So the disciples, they see Jesus now, they believe, but, but still he's telling them there's a time coming where you're gonna long for me. You're gonna long for my days Whether whether it's the days of ministry that they're experiencing with him now or the days to come of his return. And he's saying, you're gonna get neither of those. He's describing, I I believe, the age following his his resurrection and ascension. He's he's gonna say, you're gonna wish for the day that son of man comes back. And and, and isn't that kind of the, the, the period we find ourselves in right now? Longing for Christ's return. We're thankful for his provision now, but still we cry out, come Lord Jesus. We're thankful for life with him, but still we're groaning and grieving in the face of trials and funerals and cancer diagnoses. The fallenness of our world weighs heavily. And we're grateful for his presence, his spirit with us, but we still want him to come and to make all things right. And he's saying, there's gonna be people that come around. They're gonna take advantage of those longings that you have. They'll invite you to other cheap substitutes. They're gonna say, hey, see, look over here. Look over there. They're gonna be false teachers that are gonna be pointing you to false messiahs saying he already came or, or here, here's, here's, the, here's when, when he's gonna come. And, and, and don't we see that now? There's no shortage of that sort of stuff. There's no shortage of people giving us that kind of uh, misdirection or information, and, and I would just say, if you find yourself drawn to ministries that are constantly trying to predict or prophesy Christ's return, man, don't run after that. Don't run after that. Don't chase tea leaf readers and doomsday predictors. And and here's here's why. Here's why. Look at verse 24. He says, for as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the son of man will be in his day. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to hunt for the secret code in the newspaper. I don't know if any of you need to read the newspaper anymore. You don't need to search for the secret code in the message boards or, or in, on the news. No, why? Because you won't miss it. You won't miss it, there won't be any mistaking when Jesus actually returns. Because you know what, he's gonna light up the sky like it's daytime. Notice he doesn't say that Jesus comes in riding on a bolt of lightning. be, that'd be cool. Uh, no, but he's, he's saying, he's talking about that sensation when you're sitting out on your back porch and you're watching the storm and it's pitch black outside. And then all of a sudden this big lightning happens. It's like two or three second long lightning happens. And what happens? For like just a few seconds, it's daytime, isn't it? Like you can see everything. He's saying the son of man coming is gonna be like that. Every dark place will be lit up by his presence. You won't wonder if he's here then. You'll know. This day of the Son of Man, uh, throughout scripture it's called different things, but it's often called the day of the Lord. Um, And the prophets don't describe this as a happy day usually. It's a day of judgment, a day of terror, a day when wickedness is crushed, when, when every secret is exposed by the brightness of Christ. Just as a couple of examples, I'll read a couple of them from Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 13, Uh, Verse nine, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Jeremiah 46, verse 10, that day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. And that's just a sampling. The the scriptures don't paint a a picture of, Uh, I I really believe of of the world getting better and better and better. No, they paint the opposite, that it's going to get worse before it gets better. There's, There's a trial, there's trials coming, there's tribulation coming. Evil is going to look like it's winning the day. But the light of the world is coming. And he is not just going to bring the light, he is the light. So don't worry, you won't miss it. You won't miss it. This isn't a secret or a confusing arrival. Jesus is coming isn't like that turn that somebody told you, hey, just keep driving down there and then you'll see that thing and you can't miss it and turn there. And then you're still driving like 20 miles later. Did I miss it? I don't know. No, it's not like that. You, you won't be able to miss it. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that you're gonna miss it. And he's saying this to his disciples because, because if you're a Christian, not only will you not miss it, but you don't have to fear it. Jesus isn't sharing this with his disciples as a scary story, he's sharing it as a comfort. When Jesus comes again, look, at, look how the apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians. We're told that he shares as this as a comfort. He says in verse 16 in 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The return of Christ is not a day of terror for the believer. No, it is the trumpet sound playing the battle cry of the good guys. It's the hoofbeat of the cavalry of God to rescue his people. And all of us who have trusted in Christ, whether those already dead or those of us still alive, we will be caught up with him like a giant welcoming party. And we will follow our savior to the earth where he will bring judgment on the unrighteous and on sin. And he will bring his kingdom in full. He will make it all new, new heavens, new earth. And that's a day as a believer that we can actually look forward to. 1 Thessalonians 1, this is is the way that we talk about this. We wait for uh, for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Believers don't wait in dread, we wait. We wait with longing. Titus 2, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wait with hope. But, but here's, so here's a piece of the timeline though that Jesus does give to his disciples. Look what he says. He says, before it can happen though, something else has to happen first. There must be suffering and rejection. Verse 25. But first it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. I think this is like the fifth time in Luke where we hear about Jesus predicting his, his future death um, and resurrection um, in fact, in, in, in many of these times he's, he's given the whole picture of all, the, all these events of his, his, his death and resurrection. Um, it's, like, it's almost shorthand at this point. Uh, he's saying, look, first, there's still, remember, there's gotta be suffering. There has to be rejection. And it, so he's, 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 he's giving us, it's, it's still the whole thing. It's his suffering, his rejection, his, his crucifixion, his death, um, and his resurrection. That the whole thing is in view when he says this. And this, is, this fits the trajectory that Jesus has modeled throughout his ministry. That, that there must be humility first, and then exaltation later, suffering now, glory afterward. And so as, as his disciples, we, we wait with hope. Okay, so now, what about everyone else? Which leads to number three, uh, his judgment is real. Let's read it in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Whew. So here, Jesus is citing two Old Testament examples, common examples from the Old Testament of God's judgment, but the same idea. In each case, Jesus is talking about sinful people who had heard the warnings, listened to the preaching, and ultimately rejected the message. Noah told them what was going to happen, but they mocked him. And on the very day that the rain was starting to fall, with God's judgment rolling in in the form of water from the sky, what were they doing? They were just doing life. They were still eating, still drinking, still getting married, as though they had all of the time in the world. And if you, and if you know the story of Noah, this is not like happy godly living. This is, these are not healthy marriages. No, this is uh, wickedness occurring. Humanity had rejected God. They had mocked his rule. We read about it in Genesis six, where you can read the whole story of Noah. Uh, I just put like a snippet up here for us. In verse five, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. That doesn't sound like a, a lot of great you know, living going on. Uh, down in verse 12. God saw how corrupt the earth was. For every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. There had been a wholesale rejection of God and they lived in their rejection. Their lives were a rejection. And as they went about their, their lives, the water of God's judgment fell from the sky. And this, it was the same thing with the city of Sodom. If you remember, this city, Lot had chosen to live in Sodom uh, because it was both this, it was this well-watered, well-located place. Uh, it, it would be a thriving place for vegetation, uh, for, for, for gardening, for building. Um, but if you know about Sodom, the sin of Sodom was off the rails. Even when God sent angels to the city, the men of Sodom tried to do horrific things to the angels. That's how bad it had gotten. They had heard of Lot's warnings and even had the presence of angels in the city themselves. And yet on the morning, Lot's family uh, rolled out of town. We read that the sun was up in the air that day, which means it was a normal day, back to business, back to planting and selling crops as though nothing was happening, building their lives, lives that stood opposed to God. And the very sun that had given growth to all of their crops, began to fall down on them, raining down sulfur and fire, God's judgment coming upon their wickedness. And so Jesus is saying, it's gonna be like those days when the Son of Man comes, like a flood on people who have laughed off warnings, like fire on people who have mocked God and persisted in wickedness. It will be a day like that And yes, there will be the faithful like Noah and Lot who are spared from the judgment, but there will also be many unfaithful, those who refused the warnings, those who trusted their own might, who rejected Christ and they will perish. And so I think we read this and we go, yeah, I mean, that sounds a little bit like where we live. Maybe even now. And yet I think we live also in a world at the same time that so very much doesn't like to talk about judgment. We want to mute discussions of judgment. Even, even Christians, even, even, even we can be like this. There, there are some Christians, uh, some, some who call themselves Christians who they, they wanna deny any kind of judgment in the scriptures. Surely God will save everyone, they may say. Mankind's not that bad. Surely love wins in the end, they might write. But this is not consistent with the words of Jesus himself. We have to twist his words to explain that away. To take judgment and make it a non-event. But I think even we can also be be guilty in a different way as Christians. We we just don't like to think about it. We're like me on the walk. Like if I just can turn my back and walk the other way, then then I don't have to think about it. Um, But... Think back in verse 22, Jesus said, because we're his disciples, we'll long for the Son of Man. And I actually think we do that part pretty well. Like, that's I, I, one of the things that I love about our church. like we talk, a lot about, we talk a lot about when he returns. We say things like, come, Lord Jesus. Every week when we take communion, we remind ourselves that, that we eat the meal. And what do we do when we do it? Every, every time we take it, we proclaim the Lord's death until when? When he comes. For, for the believer... The return of the king is good news. Oh, so good. But I think though, one of the ways that we, that we mute judgment is we just don't think about the dread that is involved with his return. That his return is actually not good for everyone. The day of the Lord, the day of the son of man's return is not described in happy terms, it's described in dread. But I think in, in this text, Jesus is actually describing another way that, that judgment gets avoided. And, he, and this, is by, this is the avoidance by the lost world, that they don't believe it's coming. The be, people in Noah's day, they found the ark unnecessary. They, don't, they think, the ones in Sodom, they think the sinful life they're living is just fine. And maybe for some of you, that's, that's, that's where you're at. Like maybe you, you're coming to church but I mean, sure, God may be real, um, but he doesn't really mean anything to you. And, and I, just wanna, I just wanna press on you this morning. If you reject the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you ignore the offer of that that, that, forgiveness, of salvation that he, that he gives to you, if you ignore his calls to repent and to turn to him, then Jesus is saying, "You leave yourself just as exposed as those who were exposed to the flood waters of God's judgment in Noah's day. Like you're you're that exposed to the coming judgment. If you refuse the rescue of Christ, it's you're like one of those people walking to work in Sodom, doing just another day. And that's and that's what we must hear. We we must know. And, and if that's if that's you, I want I want to tell you not not so that uh, not." Not so you just have to hear a bummer of of some news, but just that you would know judgment is real. It's real and it's coming and you can pretend that it's not. You can go about your your way of life. You can have a good time. You can plan for the future, but know this without Christ, it's it's like building a life out of dry pine needles. The, The judgment of God is going to incinerate it. It's gonna burn up. And there are only two types of people we see in the story. There's the saved and the destroyed. No, there's no in between. There's no middle ground. So there's one or the other. And so if that's true, if there's, either, if there's either the destroyed and the saved, okay, then they have to ask the question. How, how do we become part of the saved? How do, we, how do I get in that group? Uh, which is uh, our, number four, that his rescue is available. Look okay, at verse 31 on that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. And so Jesus now is zooming in. On, for he had been talking in a very large scale terms. And now he's, he's zooming in in some smaller scenes. And so we see, we're seeing the imminence of the coming judgment. It, it's, not just, it's no longer just the sea of sinners. It's, it's a singular man on his house. It's a singular one out in the field. And it seems like in the scene, there's a little bit more going on than just like, oh, I forgot my toothbrush. I've got to run back in and grab it. Like, I, it, it seems like it's more than that. You know, you know that kind of feeling. Like when you're pulling out of the driveway and you're driving down the road, you're like five minutes down the road on a trip. And you're like, oh man, we forgot whatever it is. Well, you have a couple choices. Uh, number one, if it's like a toothbrush or something, you're like, we'll get a toothbrush when we get there or we'll, we'll make it work, we'll figure it out, we'll get another one. Uh, but if it's little Johnny's little pillow that he will be miserable with the whole trip if he doesn't have it, hey, it's worth turning around. Go back, we're gonna go get it. But I don't, I don't think it's that kind of like, I just forgot something in the house. Now, the picture here seems to be the house is about to be swallowed in flames, but you're just gonna run inside. Like that doesn't work. And he points back to the example of Sodom's destruction and says, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife is is a a classic picture in the Old Testament of unbelief. And in Genesis 19, uh, if you remember this story, God told them, hey, flee, get out of town, go to the mountains. Don't look back, go. And, and right off, they, they start to bargain with God. Like, hey, can we stay in the valley? Can we go to this city uh, here in the valley? And God, in his, in his patience, allows that. But Lot's wife doesn't even make it to this city called Zoar that, that, they're, that, they, that God permitted them to go to. Uh, God, uh, Lot, Lot, Lot's wife doesn't even make it. No, somewhere along the way, she stopped somewhere in the valley and looked back at her city just in time to be swallowed up by judgment. And scripture seems to be showing us that this was not a glance of sadness. This was a glance of of a longing uh, to have that home still. The longing for her life back there, and that longing for her was was greater than her trust in the plan that God had had to rescue her. Okay, now, so here's the shift in the text, finally. Verse 33, here's, here's some hope. Look at, ver, look at 33, whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. There, there's nothing more relieving than facing imminent danger and then finding a way out. And so finally, a way out. Finally, salvation, a way to preserve life It's gonna be like the days of Noah, destruction. It's gonna be like the days of Sodom, fire. But you can get out. You can be rescued, he's saying. This is the ultimate good news. This is the gospel, that the more you try to secure your life, the more you try to to establish your sense of belonging on this earth, you're gonna lose it all. But if you're willing to let it all go, then you'll be saved. It's a question of treasure, of what you're holding onto. If you remember the scene in uh, the movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, classic movie, sorry if I'm spoiling it, it's like 30 years old, so I'm not gonna apologize too much. Um, but if you remember, in, in India has, they, they've gotten, they're searching for the Holy Grail, that's the whole, that's kind of the, the premise of the movie. Uh, it's amazing, go watch it. Uh, but the, but they, they've gotten in, they've, they've actually found the Holy Grail. This is a movie, so this doesn't really happen. Um, they've actually found this cup uh, that—that's the cup of Jesus that he drank at the Last Supper. Uh, this is not a real, actual thing that you should go look for. Uh, but they're—they're they're coming out of the catacombs where this this cup had been hidden for for de- generations, hundreds and hundreds of years, right? And they—they're taking it out, and this this evil. Um, doctor that 's with this within this woman who she 's clearly been a bad guy through a lot of the show she 's she's, she's so eager to get it out and take it out, but as soon as they cross the threshold and they begin to take it out, bad things start to happen. The earth starts to shake it 's like clear you shouldn 't have done this like you shouldn 't have tried to take this out um, and, and not, not just the earth starts to shake a crevice opens up in the floor. And if you remember this scene, uh, this crevice opens up and the ground starts to get unstable and she actually begins to fall into the crevice. But who's there? Indy, right? He's got his hand, he grabs her. He's holding her by the hand and he's, he's gonna save her. He's gonna save even this woman who's been trying to double cross him all the time. And, but what happens? She looks down, and right next to her, on the ledge just a little bit lower, is the Holy Grail. It's landed there. And what does she do? She's, she's got one hand holding on to Indy, and the other hand she's reaching, like she's reaching down for the cup. She's like, I can almost get it. And he's going, hey, you better give me your other hand. You're slipping, give me your other hand. She's like, I can get it, I can get it. And of course, what happens? She falls. She falls to her death. She, she sees the Grail, she wants the grail, and the grail, the very thing that she's going after, leads to her, her demise because she refuses rescue. Are you willing? Are you willing to let it all go? To not go back and get the treasure, the treasured possession, whatever it may be for you. To give up the dream that you once had for a, 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 a life here. To let it all be swept away, even even if it means that you'll have only Jesus. This next part of the passage, it sounds, it sounds a little ominous because of all of the left behind books and, and kind of a lot of the cheesy, scary Christian uh, movies that you may have seen about this passage, um, a lot of pop culture references. But, but again, I, I don't think this this passage is giving us some like uh, multi-phase exit strategy for Christians uh, where our clothes get left behind on the floor. I don't think that's it. Um, No, I think Jesus is is telling us when the judgment comes, there's a way out, a rescue for those who belong to Christ. Look at, at 34, I tell you on that night two will be in one bed and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. So what are we seeing here? These are all humans doing the same stuff, similar people, similar jobs, similar lives. They look the same from the outside, but, but what separates them? It's not that one of them knew that had the chart and knew when Jesus was coming. No, it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's not that one was working harder than the other. I think it's exactly what, hap- what we see in verse 33. Here's the separator. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Matthew, Matthew 16 says it similarly. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because the judgment is coming, there will be one who says, I can secure my own life. I can build my own thing here, my own kingdom. I will save myself. And, and they, I believe, are the ones in the text that, are, that are, we, we hear, they're the ones that are left. They're left here to face the judgment on their own. But the other, the other says, I count my life as nothing. There is nothing, there is no greater treasure for me than Christ. He is my my only hope, my only rescue. And because of that, they are preserved. They are saved, taken by him. They are the taken now, commentators will, will disagree and people, a, lot, a lot of people argue about which one's the left and which one's the taken. Um, I really don't think it's that crucial, but I, I think that's what the text is leading us, that, that the taken, those who are just like Noah, just like Lot, they're, 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 we're, we meet up with Christ and those who are left face the judgment. To be taken is a word of being gathered to a companion, to be drawn up to someone or something and look, look at the response here in 37. The, the disciples, man, I just gotta imagine what's going through their mind. They say in verse 37, where, Lord? I mean, I just, if you could, if you could like hear tone in these words, I just imagine it just being like, where, Lord? Like, where? What do, it, almost like it's hopeless. Like, when is, where is this gonna happen? What do we do about it? And Jesus's answer, it really, it sounds kind of haunting. He said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. That's a chipper way to end this section, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus is painting a pretty grim picture, uh, but I think he's pointing us to this reality. It's, it's not the location that matters. It's not the timing that matters. What matters is that when judgment comes, it will be severe. And it will be too late to, to make a change. And it will look like a battle scene. The Jews had seen destruction. They had seen persecution. They had seen bodies piled up on bodies. Scenes where vultures would have circled the dead. So why is Jesus talking like this? I mean, it, it, I think that begs the question. Like We have to ask, like, why, why do we need to hear this? Like, why do we need to hear about destruction? Why can't we just talk about God's mercy? Like, that makes for a lot, that's just a lot more happy. Why do we talk about this? And so I wanna close with four four things that happen, I think, if we fail to think about judgment. If we fail to think about judgment, number one, we will minimize the difference between us and God. Until you see how holy God is and how far you fall short of his immense perfection, unless we see that, then we will always see judgment as unfair. We'll always see it as brutal. But no, judgment, it's the only right response. It's the only right response of God who is perfect in the presence of sin. Judgment must come because of God's perfection. He must remove and destroy sin, and we want that. We want sin to be gone. Number two, if we fail to think about judgment, we will diminish the cross and overestimate our role in salvation. When we see the necessity of judgment, do we then take pride in our position? Look at me, I'm on the ark, I did it, look what I did. No, judgment forces us to ask, why am I on the ark? How did I deserve to be here? Why did I receive rescue and not judgment? Surely it's not something better in me. Why did we, like Lot, why were we able to flee the wrath to come instead of being swept up in it? And here's the only answer, mercy. Mercy. How am I saved? It's not my ingenuity. It's not because I preserved my life. No, I'm saved because I lost my life at the foot of the cross. And what, what do we get there? We got Christ's life. It's not us, it's Him. We are saved because the flood waters of God's judgment fell on Christ instead of us. So what could we boast in? I couldn't forgive my own sin anymore than Noah knew already how to build an ark. No, he needed God to tell him. He needed God to warn him. He, he, we need Christ to come to us and to save us. He shelters us. He calls us out. Number three, if we fail to think about judgment, we will downplay evangelism. If we ignore what we are saved from, then we won't plead with our friends to be saved from it. If we see, as we see what judgment does, that what sin has earned, that what's coming toward sin, then the thought of our friends and our neighbors and those we love standing in the way of God's wrath, we're compelled to call out. We're compelled to say, be reconciled to God. Turn from sin. He'll receive you, he'll rescue you. Give up on your self-preservation project, it won't work. Come to the ark that is Christ, be rescued by him. And lastly, if we fail to think about judgment, we will forget what comes next. We will forget what comes after judgment. You see, we we could turn our backs to the storm like I did on my walk and just, just ignore it, ignore judgment. But I think if so, we will miss that the son of man who brings judgment also brings more than judgment. One day when Christ come, when he comes, he, he will wipe out sin. Yes, he will destroy Satan and demons. And those who reject God, they will be destroyed, cast into hell. But even more, in those days, he will take us, us undeserving people, and he will plant us in a recreated garden of Eden, in a new paradise, a new earth. And in that day, there will be no more suffering. The sin that has plagued us in this life will be gone. No more judgment, no more sorrow, and we will live there forever with him as our father and we as his children. what a day that will be. And so we cry out, come, Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, would you give us, as we consider such weighty matters, would you give us the ability to to see how truly holy you are? How, How sin is such... Uh, a distortion and such a violation of your beauty and your majesty and Lord we do long for the day that sin would be destroyed but would you help us as we've considered and thought about judgment as we've seen your great mercy Lord would this change us would you make us a people who, who revel in what you've done for us revel in what you've saved us from and Lord, to those who, who call for many more to come and to receive the mercy that has been so graciously given to us. So Lord, we need you. We need you to change us. Would you help us to look to our King today? And we ask all of this in the name of our Savior, our God, our King that we wait for. Amen.